This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Today's episode is sponsored by Rox Media. Rox Media is our trusted trade show exhibit partner. In fact, if you had the chance to visit our amazing booth at ICSC, then you've seen the firsthand the work they do and why they are an invaluable member of the DLC team. Rox Media is an exhibit and event management agency designed for companies looking for a creative, collaborative, and full-service approach to their trade shows and corporate events. From the design and fabrication of your next custom trade show exhibit to the management and execution of your own event, across the country or around the globe, our talented team of rock stars has you covered. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. I'm your host, Chris Ressa. I'm excited today to be joined by Mike Morris of Food Hole Co. Mike is uh, the podcast's resident food hall expert. I'm excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Nice to be here. I don't know about podcast expert, but we'll, we'll at least try to make it interesting. Well, for for me, I think food halls are this newer category, and they're they're hip to the end consumer, but they're pretty mysterious to I think a lot of people in the real estate investment community and. <laughs> a lot of the brokerage world out there and the finance community. And so I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, So we had you on the podcast once and and you did this before, but I want to start from the beginning. And I'd like for you to share a little bit about your career history so people can understand what your work experience has been and how you've ended up where you are today. Sure. No, absolutely. Happy to happy to do that. Um, and, I, and I think part of the mystique, right, is the complexity of the business, which we'll get into later and all the different sure. things that go into it and the scale that we're able to operate, particularly uh, somewhat successfully at times. Um, but, you know, my background and, and I think to understand how I became the CEO of the Food Hall Co., it's really important to understand kind of the process I, I, I went through to get here because, Similar to how complex the, the the food hall business is, you know, it, it's it's parts real estate, parts operation, parts design, parts bar, parts entertainment um, that all have to come together. And I think my my background is quite quite frankly mirrored that in a, in a unique way. And coming right out of college, I was a chemistry major. Thought I wanted to get into uh, medicine. Um, turned out that that was probably not in the cards for me uh, in a good way. Uh, I ended up uh, landing a position in leasing at a local business uh, in Baltimore called the Quarters Company. Uh, and Real quick, so are you a doctor today? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. My entire family, basically. My, wife, uh, my wife's a physician's assistant. My brother's a physician. Okay. Uh, parents were physicians, are physicians. Uh, my grandfathers were both uh, MDs and one was a PhD. Um, my two uncles were physicians. So we came from a huge lineage of, of medicine. And quite frankly, the, the background on a chemistry degree is the difference between pre-med requirements uh, and a chemistry degree at my college uh, was two courses. Those two courses almost destroyed my college career. 
uh, physical chemistry and multivariable calculus. Uh, but nonetheless, I did, I did graduate, did apply to medical school, deferred a year, decided that I want to make some money, do something different, um, get involved in something interesting, landed this job with this commercial real estate company um, as a leasing agent. That sounded like something interesting and cool. You know, candidly at the time, um, the, the, uh, not the founder of the company, but the founder of the company's father. So Mr. Paul Cordish had graduated from Yale university at something like 50 plus years prior to me. And the fact that I played lacrosse and went to Yale and could walk and chew gum. Uh, and it was just good timing of, they had just recently acquired a bunch of projects and they needed support and leasing. And I happened to walk in the door. Um, and, and for those who don't know Cordish, you know, pretty renowned company in America for commercial real estate. They, at the time, they were doing what many who are listening to this might consider a little bit more traditional commercial real estate development and leasing versus what you're doing today. Absolutely. I mean, the majority of the quarters company back then was uh, shopping center development, uh, right. predominantly on the Route 40 corridor in the Baltimore, Washington area um and uh, largely grocery anchored shopping centers and right. um when i started that was really kind of just in the beginning of you know the next evolution of their business which was largely focused on very large scale public private mixed use development work focused predominantly in entertainment and sports um projects like the power and light district in kansas city ballpark village in st louis which has now become the precursor to things like texas live um, and or um, the, I can't think of the name in Atlanta, uh, but the, the project that they have there with uh, next to the Atlanta Brave Stadium as well. And, you know, it was a very unique time. And I was very fortunate in that it was, I got my master's and PhD in commercial real estate, uh, kind of placemaking and development, I think there, and um, had a lot of opportunity to grow very, very quickly in the business and in the company. Um, the last project I ended up being involved in was uh, the Power and Light District in Kansas City. Uh, where I was involved from that project from from really the, the inception of the idea of the building and the property uh, through the completion of the first phase of the development, which the first phase alone uh, was over 600,000 square feet of commercial real estate. We brought an H&R Blocks Road headquarters into the middle of it. Uh, we built something like 2,000 plus parking spaces, 80% were below grade, uh, one block of full entertainment, two levels, uh, glass, you know, with a, with a roof structure. Um, we worked hand in hand with AEG, uh, who developed uh, what is now called the Sprint Center. It's an 18,000 seat arena directly across the street from the Power and Light District. Uh, we worked with AMC in creating one of the first fully digital movie theaters in the United States um, and created a live music venue, kind of Nokia Theater S called the Midland Theater. Um, and, you know, had an entire block of amenity retail um, and services. So we did a prepared food gourmet grocery store with the Costantino family and um, traditional bank and dry cleaner and nail salon and blocks away, high-end steak, seafood, and um, also clothing and soft good retail. It was a very unique experience um, at the time and uh, really gave me an opportunity to kind of learn from the ground, ground up, uh, which was unique. Um, through Cordish, uh, I got involved uh, a little bit in the hospitality side of what they were doing, uh, particularly in the bars and entertainment side of the business. Um, I got the bug like everybody did to think, oh, it'd be really cool to own your own restaurant, or your own bar. Um, after leaving Cordish, I started my own company, which predominantly did consulting work uh, in the large scale mixed use development side, retail focused exclusively and got heavily involved in bars and restaurants in the kind of Baltimore, Washington area. 
Um, at one point, I was invested, involved, or partnered with over 20 restaurants um, through a couple of different partnerships. What I realized is I was pretty good at putting teams together and kind of building foundations of, of structure and design and concept and business. But ultimately, I, I didn't want to be the person in the front uh, of the house in, in running the restaurant or having that kind of true restaurant lifestyle, which is a very different lifestyle than you know the commercial real estate one is concerned. Um, and found really, you know, great people and, and put them in place uh, to be successful with the right structure and right support and right foundation, design, construction, project management, financing, um, largely became an active board member, basically. Um, and, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, a local developer in Baltimore, I mean, specifically okay. Scott, Scott Plank, um, uh, acquired uh, Belvedere Square um, in Baltimore. And that was really my first entree into markets and food halls. Um, he had um, become, um, uh, you know, friendly, I guess is the best term, with one of my restaurant partners at the time, a gentleman by the name of Spike Jerdy. Um, And Spike got intimately involved in thinking through and repositioning uh, Belvedere Square. And it gave me a really interesting perspective on what does that take and what, what does that need uh, and, and realizing that it's something that was very interesting to me. It really combined, in a lot of ways, the mixed-use development placemaking experience I had gained from Cordish with the restaurant hospitality uh, perspective that I had recently acquired and um, really thought that was very interesting. Um, and we then approached uh, a local developer in Baltimore uh, by the name of Mark Kaplan uh, to potentially support his uh, retail leasing needs in a building at uh, 520 Park Avenue, Mount Vernon, uh, Baltimore. Um, and eventually after going through several iterations of where to go with basically 15,000 square feet of space in that submarket, uh, landed on the idea that we could develop a, a food hall there. And frankly, I remember we took Mark and, and his partner, Dominic Weicker down to DC, uh, union market had recently opened. Um, and we spent some time there and really realized that we thought we could do this basically in Baltimore or, or something similar. Uh, and we were very fortunate and we were able to convince Mark to, to believe in us. This is 2012. Um, and we ended up developing what is now the Mount Vernon Marketplace. It ended up opening in 2015. Um, and we were intimately involved in the development and um, curation leasing uh, of that food hall. And that led into an entire kind of business of consulting and developing food halls throughout the country. So I've developed now 13 food halls um, throughout the United States, um, as far north as Boston, down to Boca Raton, Florida, um, and have been actively involved in, in those um, for quite a while. Um, yeah. We then teamed up, you know, from that conversation and from that, we hit COVID. Um, COVID was an interesting time in the food hall uh, world. Uh, it created a situation where, you know, we, we put our arms around the other groups that were doing things like we were doing as a support network and an opportunity to kind of develop a relationship with the others to learn what was going on outside of our world that we could get smart about and could hopefully, uh, help each other and, uh, ended up establishing a really good relationship with a gentleman by the name of Randy DeWitt. Um, Randy is the founder of FB Society. Um, which was the creator of Legacy Food Hall uh, in Plano, Texas. And uh, to make a very long story uh, short, um, ended up uh, working out an a, a arrangement um, with, with Randy and Jack Gibbons, the other partner at uh, Frontburner FB Society, 
um, to get involved with the Food Hall Co. Um, and in that capacity, I'm now the CEO of the Food Hall Co. Um, our two flagship food halls uh, are Legacy Food Hall in Plano, Texas, and Assembly Food Hall in uh, downtown Nashville. Um, and then we're actively kind of in a growth mode right now and getting very close to uh, uh, being able to talk about something in New York, which we're really excited about. Such an interesting background um, that a, a lot most people aren't in, in that world. Um, so thanks for sharing. Sure. Um, from dealing with sports arenas to, you know, different downtown, like new marketplaces that you've built to lease and grocery anchor shopping center. So uh, it's super interesting, but, and I'm still in the grocery anchor shopping center game. So, um, there's still time. Well. We'll get <laughs> you to the dark side soon. It'll be fun. There's still time. So let's start with a simple one, or maybe not a simple one, but I think there's probably some listeners out there who are like, ah, food hall, food court, all the same thing. So let's, what is a food hall? Let's just define what we're talking about here. What is a food hall? Well, I think in its most simplest definition, it's it's the combination of unique local businesses that create a sense of discovery, almost exclusively focused on prepared food and some supporting the community um, that the business is set to, to serve. And I think um, typically the, the nuance here is the expectation that the majority of the food stalls, if not all of them, are independently owned and operated. And I think that's important to delineate because I think that's the big differentiator between a, a food hall and a food court, you know, a food hall and a restaurant. Um, and there's there's a number of different, I think, groups out there that, that uh, apply the term food hall to various different businesses that don't fit that definition. Um, and, and that's, it's okay, but it's not really a food hall if it doesn't kind of fulfill that definition from my perspective. Okay. That's, that's helpful. So independently owned and operated, you know, stalls or, you know, small food businesses at what, at what point, if they own 20, that they still could be the owner and be independent, like across the country, sure. independently owned and operated, would that be fit into the appeal of a food hall operator yeah i mean that, that's where we start to split hairs a little bit and i think it comes down to you know the scale of the business the scale of the operator um and their commitment to supporting the communities that we serve um i think there is an ability for for an operator to have you know 15 to 20 units and still have a uh, a place in a food hall and be very successful um, but the majority of the businesses that we see in our food halls that are truly successful are typically smaller scale, you know, one, two, three locations, um, and are truly focused in that general community in that region that we're serving, right? So typically yeah. they're, 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 they live within a 20 mile radius and the majority of their business, if they have anything outside of the food hall is within that same bit distance and they own the, the commitment to supporting that community and they are there physically in that location, it's considerable, if not majority amount of their time. Um, and it's that kind of commitment that I think makes our food hall vendors very successful when we're able to find those types of businesses. Although we have had you know larger scale operations in our food halls and also seen success. 
Um, so it's not to say it doesn't work. It's just, it's not the primary focus for us. Okay. So taking a step back, how many like in America today, pure food halls do we think there are? Do we even know? Like if I Google, how many food halls in America, what's going to come up? Yeah. I, I think if you Google it and I haven't done this in a while, I probably should have. Um, it's about, there's the idea is there's about 320 food halls in the United States right now, give or okay. take. It's more than I thought, actually. Um, yeah, but there, there's also, I'm not exactly sure we're perfectly aligned in the terminology. So if you start to really look at what I just defined as a food hall and really focused on what achieves that, um, I think that number is is closer to probably 200, really, okay. um, maybe even less. And then if you add a, a couple of different parameters, it gets even less. So, you know, in general, you know, People are calling food halls, and and they have every right to do it um, because it's it's not it's not a defined term in in the Webster dictionary yet. Um, you know, as small as a couple thousand square feet with two to three vendors, right? Is that really a food hall? I would place the position that it's not really a food hall. It certainly qualifies under the idea of supporting some local small business and you know serving the communities that we support. But then the reality is it doesn't achieve that sense of discovery, that sense of, hey, everybody can find something, there's enough, there's there's ample seating, et cetera. And to do those things, you really need to be in the kind of minimum of 10 to 12,000 square feet and really minimum of probably seven to eight total vendors minimum. Um, and when you start to look at it like that, I think the number gets even less. I think you start to get into 120, 140 category of total food halls that have scale that kind of achieve all the other parameters that we've talked about so far. I got a, I got a project. I want to talk to you about food hall after this, Mike. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Sure. So let, okay. So there, there's under your parameters, not a ton out there. There's also, unlike other parts of commercial real estate, there isn't, uh, a significant amount of operators of food halls at scale, correct? You're, you, no. right? Like, no, I, I think there's probably really five or six. And how many have like, like 50? No one, there's only 200. No one's got like 50, right? No, I mean, I, I, look, I, I think I'm probably in the category of, of most active developer of food halls. You know, I mean, yeah. if you combine the units that I've developed with the units that I currently operate, I'm at 15 at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any other operator north of probably six, maybe seven. Wow. Um, and, and that's really, I think most, you know, there's probably five to six total operators out there that have proven to operate multiple markets in multiple cities. There are certainly a developer and, and, and food hall operators that are in their backyard, um, successfully operating. Um, but there are a few that have really proven that they can take whatever their specific model is and apply it to a different community, a different market, um, different city, um, because it's not easy. It's a very complicated business. And all of that focus on that community and, and the success of that specific food hall is largely tied into getting a hundred different dials correct for that specific community and that specific scale and that specific business. Um, it doesn't always perfectly translate and, and you have to be very aware of that. Rocks Media is an exhibit and event management agency 
designed for companies looking for a creative, collaborative, and full-service approach to their trade shows and corporate events. From the design and fabrication of your next custom trade show exhibit to the management and execution of your own event, across the country or around the globe, our talented team of rock stars has you covered. And it's pretty challenging for everybody in the capital stack of a food hall to be making money, correct? Look, I, I think we're one of the few operators, and, and I think the 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 um, the foundation that 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 I inherited because of you know the 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 thought process that Jack and Randy put into the food hall co uh, is is pretty impressive, and and I think they've figured out a model that truly aligns. Um, the three legs of the stool, right? The, the property owner, the food hall operator, and the food stall vendor. And that in our model, and I think we're one of the few, all three of those legs stand on their own. Um, and traditionally, that hasn't essentially been uh, the, the model for food hall operations. Traditionally- So the three, look, the three yeah. legs of the stool are what again? So everyone can hear? I'm sorry? What are the three legs on the stool again? So everyone can hear? Well, yeah, the, the landowner, property owner. Yeah. Right? You have the food hall operator, yeah. which would be the, in this case the food hall co, and you have the actual food stall vendor, right? You have ah, the, yes. the, the group behind the stall yes. making food and serving it to their customer. Um, in, in I think the oftentimes in a lot of food halls, um, two out of three of those are working, and and one's a struggle. Got it. Um, and I think because of kind of the foundation that Jack and Randy were able to set up, we. They, they really approach it as, as restaurateurs, as um, operators. And how do we create alignment here? How do we create an environment where that triangle works? And, um, you know, they were, they, they put together a really um, thoughtful model that we've continued to tweak and evolve, but the foundation was there. Um, and, you know, I think we've largely kind of figured that out. And it takes, look, um, it, it adds a level of risk to, to follow our model. Um, but cause yes, we are doing a traditional, we're actually, I think one of the few food hall operators out there that will do a traditional master lease structure. So we'll sign a lease for, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus thousand square feet and agree to pay a rent. Um, but it comes with a uh, certain other parameters tied to the investment required on behalf of the landlord property owner, um, and the flexibility in the rent structure. And, Largely, our rent that we pay to our property owner landlords um, is is a function of the sales of our business, of the sales of the food vendors, um, and it's trickle. So we collect uh, essentially 100% of our income is a percentage of the sales that the food hall vendors are doing, and we turn around and provide a percentage of that to the landlord. And so everybody's aligned in in helping the food stalls be successful and drive sales. Um, and, and, and when you do that, we're able to pay, I would argue above market rents almost, or at least market level rents for the types of spaces that we're occupying. Uh, but it does take a certain risk and a certain, um, different perspective by kind of all three groups involved, uh, to be willing to do it because on paper, it doesn't translate perfectly to what you're used to seeing in a, you know, triple net, you know, uh, traditional shopping center, retail deal structure. Sure. So I think that was really helpful for the listener because I think most people think that the landowner and the food hall operator 
there's only two. They don't think that there's a food hall operator. They think that the landowner is the food hall operator and then they're leasing out to the little stalls. And sometimes they are, right? Sometimes there's a developer and they, they take on, they try to be food hall operator and, and landlord. And I think that's a challenge. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. A lot of groups are getting away from that right now. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of them realize that it's a food hall is not a real estate business. It's a it's an operating business that has some real estate principles involved, um, and you know it, it's it's getting that right and and having that hospitality kind of EQ IQ approach uh, is so vital to the success of of the operating business. And so I think there had been a lot of groups that got involved as the developer owner um, and sure. really realized you know what we need to bring in. An, an expert. We need to bring in somebody who, who who knows what they're doing, who knows how to build a culture, who knows how to create hospitality environment that's successful. And and if we can, um, you know, bifurcate that and 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 potentially even create a, a separate mechanism for them to hit a return and us to create a return, then that's a win-win. Got it. So helpful to understand. So with that. What is the landscape look like today for, I think you gave us like a really robust education on food halls. What, bring us to like current events. What's going on in the food hall world right now? What are some of the latest trends? What is, you know, this has been a new industry. What's, what, where do you see it going? And I'll, you know, I'll leave it to two questions. What are the trends? Where do you see it going? So I would say that, um, Look, selfishly, I think the trend for us right now is scale. And I think we're not the only ones that have figured that out. I think there are a lot of other food hall operators that have realized that um, this takes a lot to be successful. And, and to be successful, you have to be able to drive uh, a certain volume of sales. Um, and, you know, our experience, by the way, and, and I think I've mentioned this to you in a previous conversation was, you know, our check average, and it doesn't matter which food hall we're really referencing, whether it's, you know, a food hall in Boston with James Beard award-winning chefs or a, you know, food hall in High Point, North Carolina, that's supporting a medical facility and a local baseball stadium and, and some university students, our check average is, is, is virtually identical. Um, it's, it's roughly in the $17 range. And the difference between the top line volume of, of one food hall versus the next is largely on foot traffic. Um, and, and the foot traffic and sales is tied to seats and you've got to have a certain scale to achieve the top line sales that, that we look to create in order to support our model. Um, and I think what you're going to see is there were a lot of food halls that were created that were either too small or underseated because they were being driven by real estate economics, real estate principles that are either going to have to evolve and change, um, or likely fall by the wayside and, and not be supportable. Uh, long term. And I think tied to that, a lot of the groups like us, you know, you're seeing these food halls getting larger and larger um, in the newer ones that are opening, because I think that everybody understands that, that that's what it takes uh, for these to be kind of successful um, and layering in additional uses that drive people to these properties. I say all the time to, to, to landowners and property uh, developers, I want to be a destination I don't necessarily want to create a destination. And, and, you know, what I want is I want to be in a place that has in place foot traffic and then create a reason for those people to come to me and create a reason for more people to, to add into that. And 
there are a lot of other groups out there that are starting to, to play around with what does that mean? How do you drive people outside of the food? Largely so far, our model has been very entertainment, private event driven, right? So we have two venues, one in um, um, Legacy. We have the Lexus Box Garden, which is about a 1,750 seat uh, live entertainment uh, event space. Uh, we have the Sky Deck on Broadway in Nashville, which is about an 1,800 seat uh, event space and programming where we're doing national touring acts. We actually had a, a One Republic concert, it was a private concert this week uh, on the Sky Deck, which was just exciting to see a group of that caliber playing um, in the venue. It's pretty cool. Um, the There are other groups out there. And, and whether that's how do you combine food hall with you know bowling? How do you combine food hall with uh, uh, putt golf uh, or pickleball? Um, I think pickleball is, by the way, very interesting concept of what's happening right now across America. And, you know, the, the great thing about a food hall, if it's executed correctly, it's a pretty stable environment in general um, for large scale kind of uh, food and beverage use. Um, but again, how do you create additional reasons for people to a spend time there um, and b come back? And I think that's tied to the scale initiative. Those things are going to drive, I think, food halls for the next year or so. So. Super interesting. Let let's let me be the devil's advocate and poke at you a bit. Okay. So I mean, when you talk about this, right, all I'm hearing is like we want to bring food and entertainment to the same place. How, how is that like really any different than like Cordish's second evolution, like when they went from Grocery shopping centers to some mixed use developments, like or what a lot of people are doing, right? They're just they're taking food and entertainment and they're trying to make it into a real estate project. Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, there's one really specific nuance is that ultimately um, we're supporting small and oftentimes minority women owned business in this endeavor. And if you look at our average food hall, we ended up with, you know, on typical 18 to 23 food stalls of which, you know, north of 60% are women or minority-owned business. And about 85% of those businesses are, are local to the market that we're serving. Wow. And unlike a traditional entertainment project that's focused on bar business and focused on large national brands, which by the way, there's absolutely a place for the, in the real estate lexicon for those businesses to be successful. I think the, the difference in the nuance that we're bringing, you know, is, is things like, you know, I've heard recently a number of comments from groups in Nashville to, to, to our team that they could never afford real estate to be at Fifth and Broadway based on their business and their model. But that uh, us having the assembly food hall has given a place for those kinds of businesses to, to, to get in front of an international customer base, let alone a local residential market and support um, in a really meaningful way for them. Um, and I think that's really when a food hall is executed correctly, the, 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 the most important thing that we can do. Well, so that's fantastic on the minority owned business and the women owned business. It's fantastic. One of the other things I heard there though, was that I think is a significant differentiator from the project I talk about is your deal structure and how you create the size, 
the rent, the, the whole, the whole package now creates access and enables you to lease to that local entrepreneur that could never get on fifth and broad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole model is there to support them, right? So we don't, yeah. we don't have personal guarantees in, in, in our agreements. Um, you know, we, we charge typically a flat, what we call a location fee, um, for, for the vendor to be kind of invested, um, in, in the space, we turnkey the space though. So we take on the construction of building out the space. Um, we deliver the space fully equipped. Um, the, the vendor has to bring in their specialty smallwares, so their pots and pans, knives, uh, and they've got to bring in their opening inventory. So we've really tried to lower the barrier of entry to, to as low as I think reasonably possible. Um, we do have a little bit of skin at the game. And then on the on the rent kind of occupancy perspective, uh, our occupancy costs are 100% of a percentage of their sales. So we live and die by their success. We are we are aligned to help promote and, and do everything we can as a team within our organization. We have a number of different parties. We have a beverage director. We have a uh, procurement team. We have a entertainment marketing group. We have a, a training uh, team that is there to not only support our, our initiatives, but to support our vendors and, and help them be successful. If I were defining food hall based on everything we're talking about now, I think one of the ways that I would define it is by the, the model. I think people think about it from what it looks and feels like from a real estate perspective, but what really allows it to be what it is, is the, the model that's behind it. Um, and how the operators are running it is kind of what I'm hearing. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think the model trot like that's a big difference between, you know, if someone in an enclosed mall wanted to put a food court in there and they, they ran the same economic model that they used for the national franchise brands that were in the food court of yesteryear. I don't know that that's the same as a food hall, even though they had small businesses in there. I think that's right. And, and I think, look, what we're able to do is create a model that, um, you know, frankly, uh, you know, if you look at Nashville, for example, I mean, if you look at the rent we are ultimately paying, um, you know, we're, I would argue we're paying, you know, really market driven, if not higher rents on second and third floor space, um, which from the landlord perspective is, has been significant and successful. Um, and from the food vendor perspective, also been significantly successful um, because, you know, they're thriving in a market that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to go into and achieve sales that because of the primary real estate being, you know, triple A location, they're, they're more successful than they would have been in the type of real estate that they could have potentially acquired on their own uh, independent of this model. So, so interesting. Um, well, so one of the things you talked about is we're starting where you, you think what's coming is some of this mix of other destinations being brought to in, you know, the food hall, whether it's, you mentioned pickleball, putt putt, you know, the concert venues, and that's a trend we should look out for. Um, mm -hmm. Anything else? that's going on in the space that you think is uh, worthwhile to talk about? 
Well, I, I think the the you know a couple other things that come to mind. I think there's going to be a natural kind of matriculation in the space. You know, there's there's an evolution of you know uh, food halls uh, in in their current kind of uh, uh, process iteration uh, have been around for seven to ten years. You know, there is I think a process that we're about to go through where we've gotten out of COVID. We we're now really looking at each model kind of independently. What's working? What's not? You know, as I mentioned earlier, some some are probably struggling because of their scale. They're just underseated, and maybe there's a way to change that. Um, or they don't have the programmable space that's probably going to be required for their long-term success. And Can I push right there? You've mentioned underseated a lot. I think people had a vision of the size of a food hall before. What is the, like, the idea of what the workable size is to get to the right seats in a food hall today? What's the size of this building? So I, I think the... The current kind of average in the U.S. is call it somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand. I think the average is probably seventeen, eighteen thousand square feet of space. And and the challenge with that model is that, regardless of the square footage for a second, it was largely driven by real estate economics. And what I mean by that is when the operator of the food, uh, the developer of the food hall, whether it was property owner or a third party was looking at the space and the design and saying, I could either put 50 extra seats in this, you know, 500 square foot space, or I could put another stall. And th that stall generates X dollars in rent. And, you know, ultimately I've got to spend Y and either I'm investing those dollars or getting debt loan or bank or other investors involved. And I have to have hit certain return thresholds. And there's a certain downward pressure based on the financial markets to do certain things um, that don't perfectly align with an operating business. And what our experience has been is that the, that that business, that one business generates a certain volume, but those 50 extra seats could potentially generate a volume for every other vendor in the food hall. And getting that number of seats right is, is more important than having one extra stall or two extra stalls. Um, and so, you know, there's not a perfect metric on seat counts and some of that's dependent upon, you know, is the food hall suburban? Is it urban in nature? Um, you know, interestingly, I think a lot of people thought, uh, that ghost kitchens were going to be wildly successful because of the to-go model. And the problem is, is it's just like delivering groceries. It's inefficient by nature. Um, and it eats in the margin of, of what's otherwise a already tight business to start with. Um, look, delivery and, and takeout is great. It adds uh, some positives to the business for sure. But on its own, it's difficult to generate the same amount of dollars as if you had a line going out the door at your counter. Um, it's just impossible because of the inefficiency of the delivery model. Sure. And so I think, you know, right now when we were developing food halls, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we were averaging 25 to 30 seats a stall. You know, we're now looking at sometimes doubling that number, particularly in suburban locations where the hours of operation are tighter, right? So in an urban market where you're likely to see a customer come in and as early as 11, you're seeing lunch traffic as late as 1.30 or 2 o'clock. The number of seats is a little less important than in a suburban market where the average hours of, of, of lunch traffic are 11.45 to 1.00. And you've got to be able to maximize, you know, uh, butts and seats during a very tight time frame. And so the, the impact and the importance of the, those seats skyrockets. Um, and frankly, 
the majority of the food hall business is fast casual. It's driven by roughly a 42 minute uh, experience. And that customer has to walk in, see seats available and, and be able to sit They're They're looking to dine in, in store um, in general. And so the, the premium on seating in, in, in our environment is, is pretty big. Um, What's that leading to from a square footage perspective? What is like your prototype? What are your competitors today? So we basically aren't looking at anything that isn't a minimum of 25 to 30,000 square feet. Um, and on average, the majority of the spaces we're looking at right now are 35 to 40,000 square feet. Now that includes the Delta, but in the 10,000 square foot swing is that event programmable space. So the food hall itself is typically in that 25 to 30,000 square foot category. And at a minimum needs to seat somewhere between 650 to 800 people minimum. Um, to put that into to real terms, uh, Legacy in, in Texas uh, roughly is about 800 seats. Um, and Nashville, uh, we have over 2,000 seats in Assembly Food Hall in Nashville. Um, and I would argue that Nashville is probably the highest grossing food hall in the United States right now. Um, and I think that's largely a combination of factors, right? We're, we're at Maine and Maine. Nashville is a very unique market in the United States right now. It's got a combination of, you know, strong daytime population, great residential population, unique drive, you know, unique demand generators, uh, the, the Ryman Auditorium, the Bridgestone Arena, Nissan Stadium, the Country Music Hall of Fame, uh, Convention Center, all stacked on top of each other. All of those things are happening within a 10 block radius. Um, it's just, and, and, and the tourism visitor component that's layered on top of that with a very specific kind of mindset approach, uh, is, is just very unique and been very successful for us, um, there. And, you know, we're seeing on average, um, 8,600 to 8,700 people a day, um, just in our food hall, um, Amazing. I'm conscious of time. One one question I, I, I wanted to ask. So you mentioned this percentage, right? Mm-hmm. Give me a range. You don't have to give me the specifics. But if I'm, you know, I'm opening up, uh, uh, I don't know, Chris's whatever shack, and I want to open up a stall. Sure. What type of percentage rent do I paying you? So you know, we end up kind of in the, the, the lower third of the mid twenties is, yeah. is, is what we charge. And, and candidly, we turn around and we give the landlord, uh, roughly the upper middle, the upper part of the middle third of single digits, uh, to the landlord. Got it. Well, Mike, anything else we didn't talk about today? I think we covered a lot. We covered a ton, man. And if you, if that was poking, by the way, I, I'd love to see what uh, what 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 really going at it is. Uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't, that that wasn't hard, right? No, it's perfectly okay. fine. Absolutely. No, thank you. I mean, look, it's it's an awesome time to be in the industry. I think it's very unique. I think you know the challenge is that look, there's no rule book, and there's no there's no clear cut answer to a lot of these questions. Um, and I think that's also provides a very unique opportunity for groups like ours, um, to go out there and, and try things. And, and when it works, we continue to tweak it. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think any takeaway from any food hall operator that's going to listen to this hopefully is getting is that, 
you know, it's, it's gotta be iterative and you gotta just keep evolving and keep tweaking. And, um, you know, when you get something that's working, keep building on it. Cause if you're not building on it, unfortunately in this day and age in an operating business, you're likely going in the other direction. For, for sure. All the, all the comments about like thinking about it from real estate economics and that wasn't right. And thinking about it from an operating business, like I mentioned, we, you know, at DLC, we recently got into owning some operating businesses different than food, but, uh, understanding that well. So super interesting, really appreciate the time. Uh, everyone should follow Mike. If you're interested in food halls, just the guy to know, Mike, this has been great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the time. Look forward to catching up soon. Thank you for listening to retail retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.